Good afternoon. This is Randall Broad, and you are here listening in on C-Session. I am very pleased to have Anthony Tony Blau here in the studio, MD, and he's also the founder, CEO of All for Cure. He has quite an interesting story to share. Thanks for having me. Been a professor at the University of Washington, a hematologist and a scientist. Came to Seattle in 1989, but when I became on the faculty and became a hematologist, I, I mainly did research in a number of different areas. Saw patients a little bit at the time, but primarily a researcher. And worked in various areas, co-founded our stem cell institute and things like that. But about 2013, I got interested in cancer because I accompanied my wife, Sabelle, who's an oncologist down in Puyallup, to one of the big oncology meetings. And I became impressed that it seemed like the, the tools that were available to me as a researcher, which are amazing and improving exponentially, were just not diffusing over to the clinical side very well. And I used to tell people that I would have more at my disposal as far as research tools to study a mouse in my lab than Sabelle would have to, to know what's going on with her patients. And so after that meeting, it was really a big deal, we changed over my lab to focus on a new way of trying to treat cancer. In this nuance of how to treat it, give us a little bit of background on what that looked like. We started a clinical trial in 2013 that aimed to figure out what does it mean to do the very best that the world can do for a patient with a terrible, incurable cancer. And we started off uh, with a type of metastatic breast cancer called metastatic triple negative breast cancer. To figure this out and to design the trial, we, we got lots of different people involved from lots of different disciplines. We also got patients involved. And we started a trial that involved taking patients with this terrible incurable cancer, and they would allow us to sample their tumor at various sites of their body and then expose each bit of tumor to a very extensive analysis of sequencing the genome, RNA sequencing, collecting billions of data points, putting it on the cloud, making it accessible to experts from around the world who would look at this data that is very difficult to interpret, apply their best tools, and then synthesize a report that would go back to the patient and the doctor, highlighting what we found and drugs that we thought might work. Best practices? Way outside of best practices. This is because best practices, if you apply best practices, the patient dies. Okay. So it's kind of you do X, Y, or Z and the patient always dies. We're trying to find other ways of leveraging every tool at our disposal to find something that could be helpful with this kind of... So you were stretching the envelope, so to speak. Yeah, way, way stretching the envelope as part of an IRB-approved protocol where the patient and the doctor or patients fully aware that we're just really trying to take the very latest research tools and apply them in a way that they had never really been applied to patients before. But then not only to do all this testing, but to make it possible for the patient to benefit from the results of that by writing a report that tells them what we found. And if the patient and the doctor wanted to try any of the treatments that we had identified, we would work super hard to make that possible. So within each patient, you could think of as creating a set of hypotheses about what we thought might be going on and then testing the hypothesis by getting the patient on the drug that we predicted to work and then using what happened into the patient to tell us whether we were right or wrong. Are you working with the pharmaceutical companies in that regard? Not so much of pharmaceutical companies. We worked with a number of clinicians, both within academia, but also within the community. So community uh, hematologists, oncologists, as well as academic hematologists, oncologists, 
computational biologist who would take massive data sets and try to apply the latest techniques to try to understand what's going on. The patients themselves became very intimate partners in this whole process. And then people that were good at understanding how to create clinical protocols to allow patients to access investigational drugs. So we didn't work directly with the pharmaceutical companies until we knew they had a drug that we thought could benefit our patient. Then we would move heaven and earth to try to get the patient on that drug. Got it. And then how receptive typically are the patients to what you're providing here? A lot of times I see conversations with patients where if they were introduced something from outside their quote unquote doctor's office, they're not too interested. They tend to like to, well, if my doctor doesn't, they put all their faith in that one doctor as opposed to being open I come across that quite a bit. Yeah, no, I think that's a huge point. And we were fortunate to have the avid participation of a group of doctors, uh, mainly in the in the Tacoma and Puyallup area. Oh. My wife, Sabelle's a breast cancer expert, and her partner, Frank Senecal in Tacoma, is mm-hmm. like the, the local breast cancer guru in right. the South Sound. Heard the name. So these are oncologists who are approached with these incredibly difficult problems where they know what the outcome is with standard of care treatment. So they're very interested in trying to access anything that could be potentially helpful to their patients. And we try to be as absolutely transparent as possible that we don't know whether any of this effort that we're going to will help. Mm. All we can promise is that we're trying to bust down every door to find anything that we think could potentially be a clue for a treatment that could potentially help them. Is it exclusively then with metastatic breast cancer or are you looking at other cancers as well? Yeah, so at that time, and this is still kind of ancient history for me, that was for metastatic triple negative breast cancer, this subcategory of metastatic breast cancer that was kind of the worst, had no good treatments. We learned a ton from that. We had, in particular, there was one patient who had a genetic abnormality that I thought might be important to her tumor and could suggest that that tumor could be sensitive to a drug that's sometimes used in lung cancer called crizotinib. You might have heard of crizotinib. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but we didn't know. GFR positive. ALK positive. ALK positive. Yes. That's your, yes. Sorry. No, yeah. Got my acronyms on. Yeah, of course. For that patient, because nobody knew what the significance of that mutation might be, we sent out an email to experts from around the world, Taiwan, Germany, Boston, Lawrence, Kansas, doesn't quite fit in there, but... Well, the Lawrence, Kansas person (laughs) we found through a really interesting set of uh, connections where I emailed my colleague, uh, Professor David Baker at the University of Washington, who couldn't help me, but he forwarded my email to a colleague who forwarded my email to the guy in Lawrence, Kansas, who happened to be the world's expert on that question. Hmm. Through this whole process, this continues now through my company, All for Cure, uh, supported by a foundation, an amazing foundation in the South Sound called South Sound Care. Uh, they continue this trial with the, in cooperation with my present company, All for Cure, and much of what we learned from that trial uh, informs the way that I later on built All for Cure. Interesting, interesting. I'm here with Tony Blau. You've got this All for Cure that you started, what, five years ago? It's a little bit more than four years. Tell me about your personal history mm-hmm. around All for Cure. Yeah, sure. So I've been kind of super busy uh, doing this clinical trial and other things at the University of Washington. And then in 2015, I got some hip pain. I thought I was getting to be an old guy, but it turned out that I had a really big tumor in my pelvis. On x-ray, was eating through bone. 
kind of mean looking thing. And within a day or so, I found out that I myself had a form of blood cancer called multiple myeloma. Gosh, really getting the full meal deal as far as being now a patient. You were a hematologist, <clears throat> Yeah, right. And now you've got a blood cancer. Right. Were you just sleeping too close to the Petri dish? It's a good question. People always wonder, why did I get this? At the end of the day, we never know. As a researcher, of course, there was radioactivity in some of the assays and stuff like that. But I think there's no way of knowing what the cause of this was. I think I probably, had I been a little smarter, I would have picked up that something unusual is going on a few months before I actually did. Had I listened to my wife to get an (laughs) X-ray three months earlier, I would have figured this out earlier. Now as a patient, the good thing about multiple myeloma is that the treatments that have been developed for this disease are vastly worlds better than they were 30 years ago. If I had had multiple myeloma 30 years ago, I wouldn't be here today. Mm. Uh, Treatments 30 years ago, there were two drugs. They didn't work very well and everybody died. So it was simple and cheap. Now in, in the last 20 years, there have been many very effective drugs, incredibly expensive used in various combinations. I'm a beneficiary of all of the research that's been done in multiple myeloma and all of the advances that have been made in the last 20 years. So you basically took your tools like you had and then went out and started researching, started talking to all these different entities. Yeah. So when I got myeloma, we'd had this experience in breast cancer. So I essentially applied the same approach that we're using in our breast cancer patients to me I did tons of biopsies on my tumor and characterized my tumor very extensively. I learned that the tumor cells in my bone marrow had all these genetic features that were also present in the very big tumor in my pelvis, but the tumor in my pelvis had acquired an additional an additional molecular feature that was associated with more aggressive disease. So you could almost, like within me, see the tumor evolving as we know tumors do in patients. Now from my newly won, reluctantly won patient's perspective, I came to appreciate a problem that I'd never really thought of in the same way previously. And that is that with all these new treatments, all these options, I have many different treatment choices, but no really good way of knowing which treatment would be best for me, which decision should I make. Right. And what I most wanted to know is what did every other myeloma patient choose to do and so, how and what were de- their outcomes? How did you decipher this? That information wasn't available. So I just, in my own treatment decisions, I was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants, trying oh. to look at the options and make the best judgment that I could based on my background of being a doctor and a scientist. But because that, the information that I wanted wasn't available, I started All for Cure, which aims to capture the experience uh, of every patient today with multiple myeloma what were their treatment choices and what happened to them, and eventually extend that to all cancers. This is really a little hair of the dog. I mean, when you look at it from the, I don't want to get metaphysical with you, but the fact that you got this disease from what you have been working on your entire professional career. Yeah, I I sometimes describe myself as being perhaps the person in the world best prepared to have multiple myeloma. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of just an extension of, of the kinds of things that we had been trying to do for many years. Wow. Do you think this just happened by chance? If I had to answer that question, I think as frankly as possible, I think, yeah. I think it's just... You don't think you were chosen? No, okay. I don't think okay. I was cho- <laughs> It's sure. a it's a fair question, well, it just but seems... I think it's I do think it was just a, a series of events. But certainly for me, it lined up very 
very well with my past experiences. Give us a little bit of an idea of the treatment that you ended up choosing. Yeah, so for me, the nice thing for multiple myeloma is that the initial set of treatments that you use tend to work. And so I didn't have to go out and do anything like super crazy. I could just go with the standard treatment. I chose an initial combination of three drugs called Revlimid, Velcade, Dexamethasone. Mm -hmm. That knocked my myeloma down. And then a decision, not the very first decision that I had to make, but probably the second decision I had to make was whether or not to do a stem cell transplant. And I'd come to Seattle to learn how to do stem cell transplants. Now I was on the receiving side of that. Uh, So I decided to do a stem cell transplant, a so-called autologous stem cell transplant, where you take out my bone marrow cells, store them in the freezer, give me huge doses of a drug called melphalan, kind of a nasty drug designed to wipe out my myeloma or at least knock it down to low levels because you can't really wipe it out entirely. And a side effect of that is you, by the way, you wipe out the normal blood forming cells. So you have to give back the stem cells, right, right to, to circumvent that, that side effect of melphalan. And, and so I decided to do that. And then after that, I still had a tiny, tiny percentage of myeloma cells present that they could still detect. And so would that be classified as immunotherapy in a way? Sounds like you take it out and then you put something into it and you infuse it back. Most people would not think of that as upfront as being immunotherapy, although research out of the Fred Hutchinson suggests that it may have autologous stem cell transplant process may have immunological features okay. that, that people hadn't appreciated before. Sure. It's a more complex question than one might think. It probably sure. does have immunological uh, features that hadn't been really, you know, people had always thought, oh, it's just a way to give a really heavy slug of a chemotherapy drug, but it probably is more complicated than that. Immunotherapy is just really kind of on the bleeding edge right now. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, you know, it depends on how you define it. Back when Don Thomas, the kind of the the Nobel Prize winning pioneer who developed the field of stem cell transplantation, developed this at the Fred Hutchinson, he, he noticed that if you did a stem cell transplant where you used uh, stem cells from another person, right. a, a sibling, versus using them from an identical sibling, that the stem cells from a non-identical sibling seem to be pretty good at fighting the tumor, any residual tumor cells. So if you had leukemia and and you got a stem cell transplant from a non-identical sibling, the leukemia is more likely to be cured than if you use stem cells from an identical sibling. So even back then in the 1960s, 1970s, they had a clue that there's something about the donor immune system that was probably recognizing and wiping out the residual tumor cells. But everything that's developed since then, just, as you say, Randy, it's been just stunning how much has been developed around the immunological treatment of cancer. Right. As my doctor says, it's the beginning of the end. He believes that, especially my lung cancer, he, he probably not in my lifetime, but in my kid's lifetime, it will become a chronic disease because of what they're developing. Yeah, I I think there's reason to be terrifically optimistic about the long-term horizon for cancer treatment. So let's go back to All for Cure. How do people get this information? So we have an online platform for patients, clinicians, and researchers. So you can register if you're a patient. We focus initially on multiple myeloma. If you're an oncologist or if you're a researcher, patients register, and they also allow us then to access all of their medical records from all of the institutions from which they've received care. 
Then we have an expert team that extracts information, all of the core relevant information for display on each patient's de-identified dashboard. It, it contains a graph that shows all the treatments and the responses. And then a discussion panel where now a community of over 1,300 participants can post comments or questions about each patient's situation. Does HIPAA get involved in this at all? Yeah, it's a great question. We take away any identifying information, no names, nothing directly identifying, but patients who register for All for Cure acknowledge that the information that's displayed there is not subject to HIPAA. Okay. So, for example, one thing that HIPAA requires is that you take away treatment dates. And we show treatment dates on the All for Cure dashboard because we want to show as much information as would be needed for the community to make useful comments. So, so that it's not covered by HIPAA, and patients agree for that information to not be covered by HIPAA, but we take away anything that would allow okay. the patient to be identified. Got it. Is there a cost to this? No, uh, there, none of the people that participate in, in All for Cure is charged to participate. We generate revenue from providing a view of how myeloma is treated out there in the real world. Uh, pharmaceutical companies are our initial customers. Okay. But as we build up this database of, we now have over 500 really detailed views of about 525 patients. And now we're really beginning to get this data that's showing, okay, patients have chosen this treatment, these were their outcomes, and how does that compare with with another group of patients that chose some other treatment? 500 patients is still a very small number, but we're beginning to provide the type of information that motivated my decision to start All for Cure. What did other patients do who are facing this decision and what were their outcomes? Well, it sounds to me like you're building a pretty good path through the woods. We're trying. It's fascinating, and it's great that you have the passion and the wherewithal and the know-how, and then again, having this personal experience with the myeloma, obviously couldn't help. skin in the game. You took the words right out of my mouth. So they give you all their information. They're on your dashboard. They're in the cloud. How do they make these decisions? The other feature about All for Cure is that we do not provide medical advice. We'll post comments or questions. The way I think about it is the same way that if my friend's mom got myeloma and they asked me what would I suggest that they ask their doctor about, that's the role that we're aiming to provide within All for Cure. But the way it works best is if the patient's on and the doctor's on, we have a way to communicate with both of them. And now we can provide suggestions directly that both the patient can see, the doctor can see, and they can discuss. And it doesn't mean that we're the myeloma police or the the total experts. We're just ideas that they, they can decide to adopt or not. But one thing that's super clear if you're a patient with multiple myeloma is that you will live longer. If you see an oncologist who is specialized in the treatment of multiple myeloma, than if you see a general oncologist, that's very clear. But the problem is probably only 15% of all myeloma patients see a myeloma expert. And there are very few patients, you know, many patients have no way to travel to get to a myeloma. So what we're trying to do with All for Cure is if the patient's on and the oncologist is on, we're trying to empower a general oncologist to function in the capacity of an expert. Excellent. To your point that when they are especially newly diagnosed, are not aware that there are specialists in oncology. Right. I, I come across it all the time. Oh, just, right. It's just not informed. Well, yeah, it's like you, you've, you've fallen off a cliff. You're in this completely surreal world. You have to learn so much. It's about some, this entirely new area. The, the challenge is daunting. Yeah. And by the way, you don't feel so well. 
And the decisions that you're making a lot of times are irrevocable. It can really be a crapshoot. And so, and believe me, my situation, I, I had to fire my first team because just I didn't like what they were saying. Mm -hmm. And so it did, it changed. I had to actually go out and shop. And I just never even thought about it. Tony, this has been excellent. I really appreciate you coming in here today and sharing your story. It's my pleasure. One of a kind. Thank you very much. And that's going to do it for us here at C-Sessions. Thank you for listening. 